Hello and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. We exist to see lives transformed through Jesus and are located in the heart of Surrey, BC, Canada. To find out more, visit us at horizonchurch.ca. We hope this message blesses and inspires you. to have you with us right now. I know I'm live speaking to a lot of people online, but in uh, about an hour, I'll be speaking to some people here in the room. Uh, We're really excited that we are able to open up to some in-person services. Obviously, uh, it looks a little bit different than it used to, what we would like it to, but we are just grateful nonetheless that we get to gather together in people, whether it's on a TV screen that we're watching, but we're still in the room together. We're just really, really grateful for that. If I don't know you, my name's Daniel. I'm the youth and young adult pastor here at Horizon Church, and I'm speaking on week two of a series that we started actually two weeks ago called Jesus People. What does it look like to live as people who represent Jesus in a world that is very, very different from the person of Jesus. And kind of the basis of this book is based on the book of Colossians. A little bit of background. Again, if you didn't watch two weeks ago, you're going to want to go back and watch Pastor Craig's message. He kind of sets up this whole series. But I'm going to give you a brief kind of update, and then we'll jump in. Uh, But Paul is the writer of the book of Colossians. It's important to know that. He's in prison, so this is a prison epistle. And he's actually writing to a church he's never met. Um, most people believe it was a convert, uh, someone who, who had come to Jesus through his ministry somewhere, went and planted a church in Colossians. The city itself, Colossae, uh, used to be pretty prosperous uh, for a couple of different reasons, but had been since on a decline. But what it was more known for now, rather than its prosperity, was its multiculturalness. It was diverse in ethnicity, in socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic standings. There was a lot of different upper, lower, middle class. There was Jews, there was Gentiles. Not only was the culture very diverse, but the religion was so diverse because with every new person and every different background came a different belief or a perspective. Um, and so we see a church that Paul is writing to bring a little bit of correction to the church. They've allowed, as we always tend to do, myself included, to allow the culture around us to seep into our belief, our theology, which then affects the way we're living. And Paul is writing to say, hey, some of how you've been living, some of how you've been acting, you're taking your cues from culture or other backgrounds rather than from Christ as followers of Jesus are meant to. We're called to be Jesus people, not people that simply represent the culture around us. And the the hope of this series today is, much like the city of Colossae, we live in a very diverse place. And our pastor Craig said this, is how do we have diversity that doesn't lead to division? I haven't seen that in a very long time. Social media, news, wherever you want to go, diversity in background, social standing, or opinion normally leads to some sort of division. But yet Jesus came displaying and proclaiming a kingdom that was full of diversity without division. And that's actually what we're called to be building. And the book of Colossians gives us some cues for how to get there. And I want to encourage you throughout this series, um, maybe be reading through Colossians. Start at the beginning, kind of read a chapter a day just to grab some, some background and some 
some familiarity with what Paul is saying, because we're going to be actually focusing on chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. It's kind of the main chunk that we're focusing on. Again, Pastor Craig dealt with what leads up to this so well two weeks ago, so catch up on that. But I want to read uh, the passage we'll be dealing with today. It says, number 12, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is a list of virtues that counteracts or acts as the antithesis to a list of vices that Pastor Craig talked about last week. This is what Jesus' people would represent. It goes on in verse 13, um, and it talks about, it says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on love. You can tell that Paul is the same writer of this book as Corinthians as he, as he raises love as this, this attribute and this virtue that ties all of these things together. Above all these, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, as we have a few moments today, Lord, I pray for hearts that would be open hearts that would not be defensive and hearts that would not seek to justify their standings, but hearts that would say, God, would you help me be more like you in a culture that desperately needs a display and an expression of the church that represents Jesus. Lord, would you speak to us today in Jesus' name? Amen. Couple things that I think are a bit important. We're going to go through this a little bit quickly, so if you need to kind of pause, rewind, you can do that after. Uh, but things that set up what we're going to be talking about. Today I'm talking about compassion, that first list of the virtue, but it's important to give the context as to how we approach compassion, what we think about compassion, the image that comes to our mind. Uh, first, in verse 12, is the word therefore. As cheesy as this sounds, anytime you're reading your Bible, you, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask what? What's it Therefore, it is a connecting statement. It brings one thought and it's illustrating that thought with another thought. They're connected. And if you read anything that Paul written, has written or wrote, you're going to get tired of seeing this word because he just loved that word. Therefore, connected all of his thoughts. Um, in light of what has been said, specifically, this list of virtues we're about to put on is only a response to verse 10. Verse 10 says that we have put on a new self. This speaks to salvation, that these attributes of virtues we're putting on are actually fruit of what has happened previously. So again, what Pastor Craig talked about, this new self, putting on Christ, new person. In light of that, we're called to live this way. Paul's saying, therefore, in light of what happened in verse 10, he's about to say something. And he goes, as God's chosen people. Again, Pastor Craig talked about the diversity without division. Verse 11, Paul takes all these people that would have uh, situations and people groups that would have normally had division between them, and he says there's no longer any division. What Paul is not saying here is people aren't different. He's saying that their differences shouldn't matter, exclude, or cause greater glory in the kingdom of God, that we're all unified. Diversity brings beauty, not division. He says, as God's chosen people, and to kind of put the, the cherry on top, Paul takes what's called election language. This word chosen people was only used in relationship to Jewish people that goes all the way back to Abraham, that they were better, they were chosen, they were seen as more holy. 
And Paul says, it is no longer just Jewish people of natural descent who are chosen. He says, those who are, verse 10, born again, you are now the chosen people of God, which means all the blessings and the prophetic words are for anyone who is now in Christ, not just those who used to be in Abraham. This is pretty scandalous, what Paul is talking about. He says, being a part of a community of believers doesn't erase our differences, nor is it meant to. It simply removes the barriers that tend to come with differences. And he goes on, he says, holy, dearly loved, And I think this is really important because I think we get this wrong so often. You see, we are not holy because of our actions. We're holy because of his actions. His holiness is what the Bible calls imputed or put on us. Verse 10, when we put on Christ, we put on his holiness, not not based on our actions or our worth, but based on what Christ said, we are holy and dearly loved. Someone needs to hear today, how God thinks about you and loves you is not dependent on your actions or your worth. It's dependent on the actions of Christ on the cross. As we look to do this, the goal is not to just try really hard to be better. The goal is to realize that we've been made holy and we are deeply loved by Christ. And out of a a response to that and out of the overflow of that, We look to this list of virtues. Then he says, clothe yourself, clothe. This is significance. Uh, He he gives you this idea of clothing. I I had the idea, but I got vetoed to have like cool crew neck sweaters with what virtue we're going to do each time. And then I was kindly reminded, I won't say by who, that with a crew neck sweater, your gut shows more. I was like, amen, no crew neck sweaters. Uh, But Paul's giving us this image of putting on clothes, And clothing, it says, and one of the uh, commentaries says, clothing functions to indicate personal identities. It's different. It was much different back then in the original audience as it is now. Social and cultural positions were recognized by the clothes you wore. For example, garments worn may indicate that one is male or female, young or old, wealthy or poor, monarch, peasant, priest, minister, civilian, soldier, athlete, prisoner, judge, academic, or many other things. What Paul is saying here is you are supposed to put on these things. What you would normally in your natural clothing would speak to what is true about who you are. He says these attributes should speak to the reality of verse 10, that you are no longer yours, but you are Christ's. These represent a deeper reality of your identity. This list of virtues speaks specifically also to our interaction with people. This is key. There's other lists of vices and virtues in the New Testament that speak to things like purity or kindness or what we're supposed to, some of the inside. But this list exclusively deals with our interaction with other people. As we'll see in our verse today, that you can't claim verse 10 without having your interaction with other people in verse 12 affected. You can't claim to love Jesus and not have that affect how you love other people. Paul is speaking to a church that had some turmoil inside of it. And he's saying, you need to learn to put on Christ. You have yet to do that because your interactions with other people still represent your old self, but you have put that self off. You have died to that self. You have now put on Christ. And with putting on Christ comes the implications of the clothing, or I'll say it this way, what people encounter when they encounter you is important. That's actually our responsibility Like I said, the last word, yourselves. We are not putting new clothes on an old body. 
This word yourselves refers directly to verse 10. It is not, hey, try really hard, Daniel, try really hard to be compassionate because you're a compassionate guy. No, Daniel is a selfish person who is broken and wrecked by sin and will choose the good of my will versus the others every time I have the opportunity. I'm called to put compassion on Christ in me, not me. I've died to myself. The only way this list of virtues is even possible is because we have first put on Christ. Hear me, this is not a humanitarian effort to do better. This is realizing what has happened as we accepted Christ and the outworkings that are necessity of that. We are called to be Jesus' people. And it's also important to note in verse 13, 14, as this verse is talking about, this is how we interact with others But verse 13 to 14 makes clear the grace we are to have for each other and ourselves as we begin to practice putting on these virtues. Because I promise you, you won't get it right the first time. You might get it right the first time, the second time, fail. And in a world that's ready, ready to virtue shame and point out your wrongs, Jesus says, no, that's your old self. In me, it is meant to be, we're called to bear with each other. We're called to forgive one another. We're called to forgive how much, how long, just the same way, to the same degree, the same amount of times that Christ has forgiven us. And over all of these virtues, they're not compassionate, doesn't matter, love covers it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love believes the best. This is the parameters for which we are to practice putting on these clothes. The bottom line for today, as we look at compassion, is Christ-like compassion calls me to make circles where others draw lines. Christ-like compassion calls me to make circles where others draw lines. So I think it's important to look at what compassion means, because if you ever... um, had a group of people that they heard the same word, same thing, but it meant two very different things. I've realized this in Surrey, wedding reception means one thing to a Caucasian and means a very different thing to an Indo-Canadian. In money, in time, in, let's be honest, in fun, in celebration, in food, same word, wedding, wedding reception. But the implications, the image that comes to mind are two very different things. And this is often the case when we read the Word of God. And it's important for us because the danger to be, uh, that, that would be, or the danger that's possible when we read these five virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, humility, gentleness, patience, is that we would allow our old self to define what those mean and what it demands of me rather than looking to Jesus and his life and example as he defined these words to mean. We see that Jesus actually does this a lot. In the Sermon on the Mount, it says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus tends to take common things and brings kingdom expectation to it that firmly and securely puts it out of our grasp in our old self so that we're dependent on Christ. See, we need to first examine what Christ-like compassion means, what it looks like, and what it demands of me if we're ever going to be able to put it on the way that Paul intends. And the English dictionary right now would say compassion is this, sympathetic pity and concern for sufferings or misfortunes of others. And I find that that falls very, very short of the compassion that Jesus calls us to. You see, in the Greek, this word, I'm not going to get too nerdy into this, but there's actually two words that are combined 
The one actually speaks, it's, it, it speaks to the inner depth of bowels of someone. And it's actually the word that's used in Leviticus where it was this special, only meant for God part of the sacrifice, the intestines, the lobes, the kidneys. You know, when you're reading those sacrifices, you're like, why is that in here? That meant something. That was, that was deep, meaningful, personal, costly worship and sacrifice. So it has this word, but it also has to do mercy to someone, not just to feel bad, but to accomplish it, to act on it. And so this word compassion means to feel deeply at at the depths of your heart, not just the surface level pity or even what the world would, would claim is good, just empathy, like, oh, I feel that for you. But compassion must lead to action or it has not yet been compassion as Jesus would define it. So we need to ask ourselves, what is different about this Christ-like compassion? Because it calls us to be compassionate when we'd rather be right. It calls us to people we would rather ignore or hate. Why is, it important? Why is compassion so important for Jesus' people? Look around your world. If you've ever find yourself asking, do I have to be compassionate to that person? That's a sign that you're lacking the compassion that Christ has called you to. And we see that that question, that desire, that question behind the question is not foreign to what we read in the Bible. That same Greek word for compassion is used in a pretty famous scripture in Luke chapter 10 called the Good Samaritan. Even those, if you don't go to church, you've probably heard of the Good Samaritan kitchen or, or you've heard the story. And I want to read it for you. There's a couple of things that I feel like Jesus would want to say to us today. Verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer or an expert of the law stood up and put him, being Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The question itself is flawed. You don't do anything to gain inheritance. You have to be born into inheritance. So the good life that Jesus has for you, again, goes back to verse 10. It's not based on your works, but it's based on being reborn into Christ, the inheritance of eternal life. He said to him, what is written in the law? Jesus, again, throws the question back at him. How do you read it? And the expert, verse 27, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself kind of puffs his chest up, expecting that there's going to be an applause. And he said to him, Jesus saying this, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Interesting, he doesn't say believe this, says do this. But he, being the man, desiring to justify himself, said, Jesus, who is my neighbor? I don't know a question that more represents our culture today than that question. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus, as he does, he jumps into a parable. Again, it's important to know as we're reading this, the literature is parable. This isn't an actual story. Jesus is taking common language and situations to illustrate spiritual truth. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down to the road. And when he saw him, the dead man or the half dead man, he passed on the other side of the road. Said, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, he also passed on the other side. Verse 33, and this is where it gets spicy. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. He saw him just like the other two did, but he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, 
took care of him. Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus then, comes out of the parable, asked back to the expert, which, you use, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Jesus switches that question on him. To the man who fell among robbers. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed mercy. That answer shows us more about the the hate towards uh, Samaritans that was in the heart of this expert. He couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan in a positive way. So he simply says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do, else, or go and do likewise. See, in this passage, there's so much that we can get to. We're going to take a sliver out of this story as it relates to compassion. A couple of things that I want to look at that I think really lets us know what we are called to. Verse 29 says this. But he, being the man, wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, this question reveals the heart of the issue. He wasn't asking God, what would please you? This question has so many questions. It's it's not so much who is my neighbor as to want to know who is not my neighbor. It's not so much who do I need to show love to. It's, It's asking the question, who am I allowed to show hate to? You see, we ask ourselves the question, do I have to love my LGBTQ brother or sister in Christ or can I treat them somewhere else? Do I have to love the conservative or the liberal? Do I have to love those who hate me? Do I have to love those who believe differently me? Do I have to love the Palestinian people who are suffering right now? Jesus, who am I allowed to exclude from the love that you've called me to? So when we come to the conversation or moments with Jesus with the intent to justify our thoughts actions, perspectives to stay the same, it's a clear sign that our hearts are no longer in the right place. We have wandered back to the old self and wandered away from the verse 10 in Colossians 3 self that is Christ. See, the lawyer wanted to know how and where to draw a line. What can be demanded of me? Whom exactly am I required to love? The question implies that there can be a non-neighbor. See, the lawyer also wants to know from whom he can safely withhold his love. This question is alive and well today. Everyone would know we're called to love someone. The division comes where you say, well, what does loving someone mean? Do I have to have them over? Do I have to agree with them? What is, it? is it full acceptance and appreciation and celebration of them? Is it acceptance of the person? What does it look like? We ask this question every day in our society. But compassion, it asks a different question where justification asks this question. It goes on in verse 31. It says, A priest happened to go down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side, so to a Levite. Again, there's a lot of significance. Jerusalem is the temple where they're coming to worship Jericho. They were either on their way or coming from worship. The priest being the pastor, the Levite being like a leader in the church that was meant to serve the priest. These were holy guys. Yet they respond in this way. And, and sometimes they get a bad rep, but it's important to keep in mind. Leviticus, it left a lot of room for confusion around this topic. Leviticus 19, 17, 18 identifies the neighbor whom we are to love as only a fellow Israelite. Yet other places, Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, it says, when an alien or a, someone outside, a, a foreigner resides with your, you in your land, do not oppress them. Be, let them be to you like a citizen and love them as yourself. 
So there was some debate within the Jewish community as to who was a neighbor. So this question isn't exactly, oh, it's not terrible. There was probably more people. But what it does mean is the expert of the law was looking for a loophole to allow him to draw a line of exclusion rather than to invite people into a circle of community. Saying, who am I allowed to exclude? And there's a lot that can be assumed about the priest and the Levite in this part of the story. But it's best, however, to focus on what the text emphasizes. It emphasizes a callousness in their heart, leaving a man to die by the wayside rather than showing love and compassion. See, Jesus uses two examples of people who held, who held very firm convictions that it was a command of God to which they gave their life to obey, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. They had to go through the theological gymnastics to come to the conclusion that, oh, that man's not my neighbor, therefore I don't have to show compassion. I don't need to go to examples. I'm sure the Holy Spirit's pointed something out in your heart if you're open today where you've asked the same question. Do I have to? Surely not them. Do I? Well, they don't believe what I believe. Where do we draw a line where Christ is asking us to create a circle? See, if I can convince myself that someone's not my neighbor, I'm free from the demands of compassion and I'm free to draw lines rather than widen my circle. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, saw him, and he had compassion. See, this is where I said, like before, this gets spicy. If you don't understand the turmoil between Jews and Samaritans, this doesn't quite make sense. See, Samaritans would go into Jewish temples at the time of feasts, these holy moments, and they would scatter dead bones amongst the temple so that the temple would be defiled so that they couldn't worship. They both claimed to follow Yahweh, but there was a lot of differences that goes back to the exile of the Jewish people. There was a deep, deep hate that as we see this man, the expert law couldn't even say a Samaritan in a positive way. They hated each other. And we miss the significance of this. We think like, oh, they're kind of the same. Like, oh, you know, it's Christian, it's Catholic. No, no, it's not the significance. And Kenneth Bailey, he writes in a book called Through the Peasant's Eyes. He says this, and this speaks maybe a little bit more closely to what this would have been like today. He confesses that in 20 years of ministry among Middle Eastern Arab Christians, he never had the courage to tell a story to Palestinians about a, normal, about a noble Israeli, nor a story about the noble Turk to the Armenians. The news is full of a situation like this where somehow people have come to the conclusion that someone else is no longer their neighbor. I can justify any action and still hold my belief in Jesus if I can come to the conclusion that they're no longer my neighbor. See, where the teacher of the law wanted to limit the extent of his compassion and draw a line, Jesus goes further to the furthest extreme with his example to show how wide our circles should be. If you're wondering what compassion looks like, verse 34 lets us know. He went to him. He was on a journey. This was not convenient. This was not his plan. The man was on a donkey, had supplies to go on a journey, yet he allowed his plans to be interrupted and come secondary to the needs of someone who was hurt. He went to him. 
He bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Again, he didn't just have these. This wasn't a, you know, uh, in case things happen, first aid kit that, oh, luckily it's here. There was a purpose for that. He was, it was probably a celebration. It was meant for this. As someone who does some backpacking, I know that as you're walking and journeying, you don't carry things that are unnecessary. So he takes things that were necessary for his journey and he decides that it's worth it to use it on this man. He does not know, and might I add, a man that would hate him because most commentaries believe that this man who was on the road was Jewish and was despised. This man would have despised the Samaritan, yet he uses his own things on him, pouring on wine. Then he sent him on his own animal, preferred him in love, brought him to an inn, redirects his whole plan for the day, probably stayed with him for the night. It says he took care of him. You want to know what extent compassion goes to? Here it is. And the next day he took out some money, gave it to the innkeeper, said, if there's any other costs, I'll come back and I'll pay for it. You see, we tend to think in terms of doing mercy or compassion to another. But the Greek word shows compassion is something we do with someone. Compassion doesn't just stop with feeling sorry. Compassion demands action. We're called to do something. Compassion performs where empathy falls short. See, Christ-like compassion causes us to forget self in the awareness of others' needs. Christ-like compassion cost the Samaritan his time, possibly his reputation. If that man would have died, that Samaritan could have been held legally responsible for his death. He put his own risk. The robbers could have still be there. His cleanliness, his comfort, and he had to put aside his prejudice. The good Samaritan showed compassion without any expectation of reciprocation. Can you show love to someone that you know will not return it back to you? Forget loving those who love you. Jesus says that's easy. Christ calls us to enemy love. Christ calls us to show compassion, not because we're good enough or they deserve it, but because that is what is true about the heart of Christ and should be represented through us. And then Jesus follows up with this question, who proved to be a neighbor? See, Jesus turns the table on the lawyer and he does it with us today as well. The question of the lawyer is often the question we have as well. How compassionate do I have to be? Where can I draw a line? And Jesus says, what does compassion require of you? We want to know the bare minimum that we have to do. Who do I need to show compassion to so I can know who I don't need to? But Jesus ends by asking the question, not who is your neighbor, rather, are you able to be a neighbor? Jesus calls us to focus on how big we can make our circle, not how small we can draw lines. What does compassion require of you and I? Compassion calls me to make circles where others draw lines. What does it require? First and foremost, we need to receive it. In Jewish tradition, there's three examples that were always used. Priest, Levite, and the third one that the whole crowd would have likely thought was coming was Israelite, a common layman. But rather than that, Jesus says Samaritan. And the disdain for the Samaritan would have left listeners with only one person left to identify with. The only person left in the story with whom they could have identified was the man in the ditch that was helpless, broken, and wounded in need of a savior. We started with saying compassion like this, this level of compassion's not something you can muster up. 
Until we see ourselves not as the good Samaritan, but as a man broken, beaten, and naked on the road, helpless to save ourselves and receive the compassion of Christ that is, that is spoken of in verse 10, we will never be able to express or extend that type of compassion. If you're here today, you need to know whatever has caused you to find yourself in the proverbial ditch, broken, away from God, you need to know that there is a Savior that crossed the road. The Bible says that he left heaven and he came to earth. He put on flesh. He took his plans. He humbled himself. He gave you his benefits and he took your brokenness and he invites us into this relationship that is surrounded with compassion. We'll never be able to extend compassion until we first receive that compassion. If you don't know Jesus today, you need to know that you have the ability to put on a new self, that being Jesus. You say, Jesus, would you forgive me, repent, and say, God, I need you to come into my life to change me. I need to receive this compassion. And it requires us to then extend it. We said at the beginning, this list of virtues we're going to be looking at, they don't stand alone. They are directly connected and correlated with verse 10, this putting on of new self. I can put it this way. When we put on Jesus, that is a root, and compassion is a fruit or a litmus test, or an expression of that which is here. The same way the Jewish man knew that you can't love God without loving people, you can't put on Christ without putting on this type of compassion. And that's not to say that it doesn't happen, but what that is to say, that if you find yourself drawing lines, it's not a sign that you need to get better at compassion, it's a sign that you need to go back and and be renewed again, as verse 10 says, in the knowledge and the image of Christ. We talked about this three weeks ago. If, you're, if you struggle with compassion, don't try harder to be compassionate. Go back and abide more in Christ and allow his presence to transform you so deeply and thoroughly that the only natural, reasonable response would be to be compassionate to those you would rather not be. The test and the sign of compassion is when you're compassionate, when you don't want to be. That's Christ-like compassion. Jesus doesn't tell us what to do to be compassionate. It's interesting. He gives us what the result of compassion should look like. This is huge. What does it look, what, how do, what does compassion, being compassionate look like? Whatever is necessary to see people who are in the ditch taken out of the ditch. To see those in your life who are wounded have their wounds being bound. To see those who have fallen down be picked up. To see those who can't walk on their own carried and assisted by your life. To see those without being provided for. To see those who have been broken restored into the image that Christ has created them for. You see, Jesus doesn't give us a list because then we could go to our situation and say, oh, I don't have to be compassionate here. We don't go and say, this is what it looks like to be compassionate. We go to people and say, what does it look like to bring healing? That's what compassion demands of me in this moment. It might be different with someone else. But the goal is not the list that we can do to justify ourselves. The goal is that we would be transformed, that our heart from a deep place would desire to see people whole, bound up with their wounds, Healing from yesterday, purpose for today, vision for tomorrow. Compassionate people with Christ-like compassion live lives in this way. And lastly, here's some steps that love us to take as we close. Because this is kind of an abstract thing. What do we actually do 
And I believe like compassion is the first list in this virtue because it frames how we're called to be kind, how we're called to be gentle, how we're called to be all these things. Number one is I would invite you to cut out time, take out your phone, set a reminder, 30 minutes. That's one show on Netflix. You'll be fine. And invite Holy Spirit to examine your heart with you. Take a journal and ask him to reveal places or people where you tend to want to draw lines, where he's asking you to build a circle. Who, if, put it this way, if I say we are called to be compassionate to everyone no matter what, who comes to mind We say, what about these people? That's a good place to start. Where do you not want to be compassionate? That's a good place to start. And if you're curious, well, what does compassionate mean? It means that whoever that person you'd rather not bring into your circle, their wounds are bound, they find healing, they find purpose in Christ, they're restored and provided for, and we give sacrificially to do that. That is what compassion. And I want to encourage you, as you write down this list, your next step is not to try harder, it's to repent. Simply, Jesus, I can't, because I can't do it. Jesus, I would repent that God help me. And then I would ask Holy Spirit to reveal compassion in himself that will then be expressed through yourself. We need to abide. Go back to verse 10, read it. Be renewed in your knowledge, experience of Jesus and what he lived as an example. And lastly, commit to being moved by compassion. When things hit your heart, don't just let it sit there. Ask, simply ask the question, Holy Spirit, what does compassion require of me in this moment? Listen and respond. Because Christ-like compassion calls me to make circles where others would draw lines. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. God, we, we don't have the ability to be this, this compassionate. We don't have the ability to be this kind. You, you've raised the bar beyond our reach, God. And so we acknowledge that we need you. And God, we acknowledge that it's our abiding in you that shifts and shapes us enough so that we might extend this type of compassion. God, I pray that as we take time to evaluate our hearts, we would not allow our prejudice or our desire to justify our actions to blind us from the people you're calling to bring into our circle. God, I thank you that you already made a way for us to be made right in repentance through the work of your son on the cross. And God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would be very movable by the spirit of the Lord when he brings compassion for other people, that we might see the hurt, the broken, the lost, the downtrodden, those far from God, healed, wounds bound, prosperity given, and new perspective, new life given as they learn to put on Christ the same way we have. We love you, Jesus. Would you be with us this week? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Horizon Church. To find your next step, visit horizonfam.ca. Have a great week.